Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. supposed to begin tonight with uh, Mina speaking uh, about Angela, but uh, Angela had a family member pass away, and so she can't be here tonight. So we'll postpone that till next week. Hopefully she'll be here next week. Um, tonight is the fifth talk, I think. <laughs> scorekeeper <laughs> um, in the series I've been giving on Zen Mind Beginner's Mind which is a collection of essays that were edited uh, and transcribed that Shinru Suzuki gave when he was still alive um, uh, in the 60s and um, I think this will be the second last talk. So uh, tonight I'll ramble on about a few pages here and there. And, um, and then next week I'll talk about just generally about the last section of the book. And then we're going to switch gears. Uh, and then the next topic I promised was going to be death. It's good to follow up beginner's mind, I think, with death. <laughs> um, and I've decided that the way I'm going to handle the topic of death is instead of giving talks every week on the topic of death, which seems ludicrous, um, I'm going to read some death poems. So traditionally, uh, there's a Japanese practice of writing. Actually, you find this in many traditions, but we're going to focus on the Japanese practice of writing a death poem every year on your birthday. Um, and then, uh, when you're actively dying, uh, if you've studied with a teacher, the teacher will come to you when you're actively dying and work with you on your final death poem. And so I'm going to read to you, you know, four or five centuries of death poems. And we're going to practice writing our own death poem. And there's restraints around how to write a death poem, which are usually four lines. And so we're going to work together on writing a death poem. Um, uh, so one of my teachers, Enkyo Roshi, when she has students who are dying, her good friend actually just passed away, she'll go to the hospital and she'll sit with them and they'll work uh, really closely together on writing a death poem. And if you know Roshi, I know many of you know her, you know, you'll write a poem and you'll say, oh, this one really captures it and she'll like, 
<laughs> so there you are, actively dying, and she's putting you to work. <laughs> to be clear, to be clear. And if you know anything about Roshi, you know one, one really strong teaching that she's always giving is to express herself. Right, right up until the end. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to work together on writing death poems. Um, and I'm not, it's not going to be too intellectual, really. And um, the other thing we're going to do is we're going to work together on advanced directives. So uh, this is a term you hear more about now in the United States than you do in Canada. Um, but we're actually, I'm going to give you uh, advanced directives forms. And for a couple of weeks, we're going to work together on our advanced directives. So this is a form that says, you know, when I die, here are the people that I would like to look after me. There's actually even a section where here are the people I don't want to be able to make any decisions for me. Um, and then it gives different scenarios of if I'm in such and such a situation and there are these options, here's what I would want. Uh, if I'm unable to make those decisions, this is what I would want to know my agent this is what I would want my agent to know. And, um, and then it actually gets really personal. And on, uh, in the good advanced directives form, um, there, there's whole sections on um, how somebody would want to be spoken to about their spiritual practice. Um, any of you in palliative care work, I know some of you do hospice work, know um, that... Um, uh, it's very uh, complicated talking to people about their spiritual practice. Um, some people aren't used to speaking about their spirituality, but statistically, there was this amazing study done, and it's like something like 85% of the people who go into hospitals for care want to be asked about their spiritual practice. So we're going we're gonna to fill out, these are legal forms, and we're going to fill out our advanced directives, and we're going to talk about uh, sharing them with our family and friends. Uh, does this sound okay to do together? Yeah. yeah. And uh, I just thought that would be a really interesting way, to, you know, and we'll work on that through the solstice and, you know, maybe till July. Um, uh, then we're also going to study, uh, as I promised, we're going to study... I've been trying to pick contemporary things and not like text written 2,000 years ago. That's why we chose Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. But the, the next text that I want to study is one of Jung's last collections of essays called Mysterium, which you can go out and get, which is uh, really good. Um, does that sound like an okay plan? Does anybody object or? Okay, good. Um, so uh, tonight and next week, two more talks. And then instead of just talks, we're going to get into some, some uh, you know, more experiential things. Uh, and I don't know, does anybody want to say anything about last week? It was pretty intense last week. We got into some really good material, I think. And I don't know if anybody had you know, any weird dreams or hasn't slept since last Tuesday. <laughs> Or, or really learn something that maybe they want to share. Um, traumatized. What took place in the people that went here? What took place? 
oh, there were people not here. <laughs> so after sitting, I talked, and I don't even remember what I talked about. I actually didn't record last week because I wanted people to share without it being recorded. Um, but it's probably up on the blog, I think. Yeah. Um, people sat face to face for quite a long time, breathing, and just allowing themselves to be seen, uh, forgiving themselves for being seen, uh, dropping into how what someone else is seeing is not like the core of them, it's just how they are in that moment and allowing themselves in each moment just to keep changing what they feel and then allow what they feel to show up in their face and to be seen. And then I did a little guiding, guided meditation around that that went into the topic of dying and um, forgiveness and what else? Being in love, conflict. Being in love, conflict. Um, how was it, how was it I just, for you? I love the experience. I yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just thought it was really powerful. Yeah. yeah. Great. Does else want to share anything? Yeah. Um, I just realized when you mentioned it that I think I had this really intense dream, I think, two days after. And uh-huh. um, I just related it now, I suppose. And it was um, a little nervous about it because I don't usually do this with um, You don't have to tell us the whole dream. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it was actually my, uh, in my imminent death. Uh-huh. So um, there was a group of people who were helping me, assisting with my suicide. Uh-huh. And I was at my age now, and um, they were a little bit inexperienced. And Joan Halifax came to me in a cave at one point. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I, what I really discovered was the things I'm really clinging on to in this moment, like in this part of my life, and attached oh. to. And I remember just being in there moments, moments before death, and my mind was super active, and I felt like I was in the cushion, and, and it wasn't working out for me, and I couldn't just let go, and I felt like there was not enough time. I could hear your voice saying, just die. Just <laughs> 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 die. <laughs> I had this, um, I woke up in a terrible sweat, and, and wrote it all out. And, yeah, it was, um, it was very, very intense. Yeah. Great. <laughs> so now, really look at that tree. I didn't look at it. Yeah. <laughs> when I say look at it, I, I don't. I mean like, imagine the dream as your partner, and, and let it look at you. Not look at it like, oh, you have to interpret the dream or analyze the dream. It's amazing when we have experiences that we feel are really deep, and then immediately they're in our dreams. As if, like, just to say, pay attention. Uh, Jung thought that the most important dreams are the dreams that wake us up, in the, literally, in the night. That they really need this some pattern in consciousness really needs to come into waking life. That it'll actually like wake you up for neurologically for you to actually be able to process it. Lena.
Oh, I don't. But sometimes they put emphasis on you, and you better pay attention. But I don't think you should uh, sit and analyze every dream. I think dream is like, it's, mo it's more like the brain has like an editing room with like old film stock. And it just goes through like the film of the day. Lots of double exposures. And, and it just kind of like edits it. And the dream are like all those scraps, like on the editing floor, you know. And, and some really intelligent part of us is um, just that same part of the whole natural world that self-organizes to make things efficient, decides what consciousness can handle, what it can't handle, you know, and, and arranges content. And that comes through in, in dream life. I've always thought of dreams that way. And that's why I think it's really important not to cover them over with too much conceptualization. Because the ones that are important will be there, and a lot of them are just scraps, and you don't need to like reinterpret them all with your dream dictionary, as I did for many years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so I just want to back up a little bit to some instructions that I gave at the beginning of sitting. You know, just just about you know, uh, just when. Because this comes up a lot, but it's just when you're sitting, we all have concerns, you know? And I think sometimes it's hard to know what to do with them. Um, and so just a note about that, because it sort of stayed with me during the sit, was, is, you know, when you have a concern, um, it's really important that you uh, deal with it in the right way so that you're not using the time of your meditation practice to work out your problems. And what I mean by that is when a concern arises in the space of sitting, just to ask yourself, you know, how heavy is this? Or one, one way I like to say to myself is, you know, how much does this weigh? You know? How, how much does, you know, just let the, like, take the concern and, like, make it into a shape, you know, and, like, see it. And how much does this weigh? How heavy is this? And when you look at the concern that way, what you're really doing is you're shifting your attention from the content of what you're concerned about to the way it, the mind holds the concern. And that's more what we're interested in in meditation practice, is when you're sitting and a concern arises, just notice how much you're glued to it. Notice how heavy it is. And then check your attitude about it. Then see how the mind and the heart and the body are holding the concern. And that shift is really, really important. Because it takes you out of the way we usually relate to our concerns, which is just to be concerned about them, and then to only be in the content about them. And all of us are deeply psychological, which is probably why we're here. And some of that default, uh, that, that sort of the modus operandi of analysis with our concerns, just ruins our meditation practice. 
Because it's not the place to do that. I think most of us don't want to hear that. When I think like meditation is the place to work out. Because most of us come to meditation practice because of our problems. As Shinru Suzuki said last week, you can't practice if you don't have problems. <laughs> I love that. But then how do you work with it? Not through the conceptual field. Yeah. I'm reading this book right now by a guy named Robert Bella, who is, I think, he's got to be in his 80s. Um, some of you might know him. He, he's an academic guy. Don't, don't bother. But I'll, I'll summarize a little bit. Don't, don't write that down, Mike. <laughs> um, he's, a, he's a scholar of religion, and I, I think... I actually think everything he says is right. And he's got this idea. Well, for, first of all, before Robert Bella, there was a philosopher named Carl Jaspers, who some of you might have heard of, who coined this term the Axial Age, uh, which is based on this age around 1000 BC, where all over the world, without communicating with each other, cultures started developing a whole new way of seeing themselves and all the major religions were developed within a very short time. Um, Christianity coming out of the roots of Judaism, um, Taoism and Confucianism at their height. Um, all, all, the, all the religions all showed up. Uh, the Buddha, um, all at the same time in world history. And scholars have just really tried to explain how this happened. Uh, to, to no success, really. Because how can you explain how anything happened? I don't know. Um, but one of the things Robert Bella points out about religion is that at this time, all the major religions shared two things in common. The first thing was they were entirely conceptual. Uh, becoming one with God in heaven is you can't get more conceptual than that being one with God in heaven has nothing to do with growing beets and the local rivers and the vegetation on the land it's, a, it's totally a human construct um, and the second thing that all the religions had was a focus on the individual. A focus on the individual. And Buddhists, whenever you say something like this, get really uncomfortable and say, oh, but you know, we're practicing the Bodhisattva vow and on and on and on. But actually, if you read early Buddhism, it's totally focused on the individual. Nirvana for individual awakening, um, to me, looks very similar in its model as what you find in Christianity or in Judaism. Uh, so these are two kind of uh, um, uh, changes. I, I don't like saying in human consciousness, whatever it is, something changed in human history around this time where our ideas about religion became very conceptual. And, and I think, and I think Robert Bella kind of hints at this, if you go anywhere in the world in history, you'll find religion. And religion always started historically 
when people became aware of language. As soon as people were speaking in symbols and using representation, then we had religion, because we were able to work in symbols. But then in the axial age, it went to a whole new level. And then something else happened, which is then the religions went universal with this idea that, well, everyone can love Jesus. And Jesus can love anybody. It's universal. Uh, Judaism has really struggled with the universal aspect of its religion because uh, of this issue of having to be born Jewish. You know, my mother always reminds me that his mother's not Jewish. <laughs> you know, um, but at the same time, I, I think uh, it still fits into that category. Um, but, you know, before these organized conceptual religions, I don't think you have this. Like, I don't think the Iroquois went around trying to fight people for them to become Iroquois. <laughs> you can't, like, maybe you fight someone to get some more horses or better, you know, metal or something. But you don't, you can't, like, make someone Iroquois. Like, you can make somebody Christian. And you might argue the Christians kind of overdid it a little bit. They, they went a little too far. You know. And of course, the Buddhists of most of the world religions have been pretty good, actually. Um, except for a few moments. Why am I saying all this? Um, one of the things you really feel in Shinra Suzuki's book is that what he's teaching has absolutely nothing to do with Buddhism. And um, our practice has nothing to do with Buddhism in every way. When you sit and you drop down into that place that's underneath what you think you're doing, um, you touch that place where forgiveness happens quite, quite easily. Where some door of generosity opens that you didn't open. With your ego. With intention. It just opens from the other side. Um, some trap door that opens this way. And this has nothing to do with nirvana and samsara. You know, the ideas of heaven and hell, like everyone runs away from their religion, they get to Buddhism, oh, Buddha doesn't have any of this? Well, come on. Nirvana, samsara, like, it's all there. But actually, in the practice, all of that falls away and drops away. And that's why people who study like Theravada Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism, you get it. There's the five this, the seven this, like these stages of enlightenment, these stages of the jhanas. And then you get to Zen. And it's like completely confusing. And people who practice Zen are always like completely confused because they don't really know what it's about. <laughs> like what is this practice really about? And I mean, when I was in Japan, it's like that all the time. You know, what, what on earth is this about? Robert Bella says of the Japanese that they are the culture that 
focuses so much on the vessel of everything, the form of everything, with nothing inside. And if you put anything inside the Japanese vessel, it's Japanese. And you've seen this in Japanese culture, maybe more than any other culture. They take like all of Chinese language, they drop it into the vessel. We're going to learn the whole Chinese language, and we're going to turn it into our own. We're going to take all of Chinese Buddhism, and then we're going to make it our own. And then we saw this in the 1800s in the Meiji Restoration era in Japan. We're going to take all of Western philosophy. We're going to learn it. We're going to learn the language. We're going to make it somehow Japanese. And I think when you really feel Shinru Suzuki talking, you feel this Japanese way of feeling life that has absolutely nothing to do with Buddhism. I don't think. And Shinra Suzuki seems to be saying this in beginner's mind. Beginner's mind has nothing to do with religion and has everything to do with having a religious feeling for life. And then to maintain that, we create the scaffolding of bowing, which is not sacred, it's just mundane. Lighting incense, mundane. And then you take all the mundane things, like breastfeeding, combing your hair, brushing your teeth, and you make those the most sacred. Those, the brushing your teeth is the most sacred thing. So that every day becomes the sacred. And all that stuff that looks holy, it becomes all the mundane. So. You know, I have a son who is around tonight. And, you know, I've never really wanted to teach him so much about yoga and meditation. Like, if he's interested, he can come do it. Um, so I give him, like, I teach him how to light incense really carefully. And he loves it. So. <laughs> or how to chant, and he loves it. Mima's daughter is getting really into this also. And um, so you take the things that seem holy for the kids and you make them really like the mundane everyday stuff. And that way when they're older, um, it's no problem. Right? Even though they still don't know how to sit. <laughs> but they don't need to, you know. So anyways... Um, this was an interesting thing we noticed in the, in the mindfulness for families is that, you know, when we were trying to do kids' activities a lot, the kids were not really as, interesting, as interested. And then the more we started doing formal things, like here's how you sit on a cushion and how you arrange it, and now we're going to light incense and we're going to chant and do all the, those things. And the kids liked it more and more and more, <laughs> even though that's not conceptually what we thought that they, they would like. And maybe sometime Mina can talk more about that. Uh, so anyways, let, let me read uh, Shinra Suzuki here. I'm going to read from page 118. Uh, because Buddha was the founder of the teaching, people tentatively called his teaching Buddhism. But actually, Buddhism is not some particular teaching. Buddhism is just truth, which includes various truths in it. Meditation practice is the practice which includes the various activities of life. This is one of those Shinra Suzuki moments where it's so easy just to like keep going. But did you hear what he just said? Yeah. That meditation practice 
includes all the practices of your life. All of your neuroses are right there in your meditation practice. All of your anxieties are right there. All of those patterns that you think only happen in relationship, at work, with money, right there in your meditation practice. Therefore, your meditation practice is not something that you do to get anywhere. Your meditation practice is the place where you look at your life. So actually, we do not emphasize the sitting posture alone. Here's another beauty. How to sit is how to act. How to sit is how to act. What does that mean? How to sit is how to act. How you're sitting right now, this is also how to move in your life. This moment. We study how to act by sitting. And this is the most basic activity for us. That's why we practice meditation in this way. Even though we practice meditation, we should not call ourselves a Zen school. We should just practice meditation. Take our example from the Buddha. That's why we practice. The Buddha taught us how to act through practice. And that's why we sit. To do something, to live in each moment, this is the temporal activity of the Buddha. To sit is to be the Buddha himself. To be the historical Buddha. The same thing applies in everything we do. Everything is Buddha's activity. Whatever you do, even if you keep from doing something, that's the activity of a Buddha. Because people have no understanding of Buddha, they think what they do is the most important thing, without knowing who it is that's actually doing it. You like this play on, like, your Buddha nature and also the historical Buddha? Same thing. Each one of us has his own name, but those names are the many names of the Buddha. When people put emphasis on meditation, it's not true meditation. It looks as if they were sitting in the same way as the Buddha, but there's a big difference in their understanding of practice. They understand this posture as just one of the four basic postures, and they think, now I take this posture. Do you know the four basic posture? Uh, sitting, standing, lying down, and walking. Thank you. Um, but meditation is all the postures. Each posture is Buddha's posture. This is something I say all the time. Every posture is a yoga posture. Everything you do all day long is a yoga posture. You can't ever roll up your yoga mat. You try, you think, oh, I'm rolling up my mat. This conception, right? Oh, I'm rolling up my mat, and now I'm going to go to Bay Street. You know? <laughs> but, like, you can't... Sorry, Patty. We're... <laughs> Um, is your office on Bay Street? Oh. <laughs> all week I was writing the talk and there was all kinds of references I was going to make to Catholicism and then I was like, oh. <laughs> we'll leave it for a couple weeks. It's interesting. When the Buddha talks about meditation practice this is not Shunra Suzuki now but 
he, he, there's two sets of verbs he uses. He uses the verb of uh, to see or to watch, and then he uses the verbs like um, to feel or to touch. And when you read some of his basic meditation instruct, uh, um, instructions, distractions, <laughs> very interesting. Um, one of the things that you notice is the, the, the verbs that are more sensorial uh, outnumber the verbs that are just around seeing, right? So instead of, you know, uh, seeing the mind or, or uh, looking at your experience, he t speaks much, much more um, about uh, feeling one's experience. And he uses the word, if you've studied uh, the, the suttas, uh, Donna, you probably know, you know, to touch, right? To touch experience, to touch experience. And that's why I'm always going on and on, and you hear me, like, beat this over your head about meditating on the breath, that you're not watching your breath but you're becoming your breath. It's really important. Because these days, this, this new way of seeing mindfulness, it's about watching, watching your experience, watching impermanence, seeing. And we have to keep going. Because that's, again, conceptualization. That's the, the trap of religion right there. We have to be able to go past that and become breathing. And this is the way, you know, uh, I've been doing a lot of interviews with some of you in the room uh, this month. And, you know, one of the things that's been coming up a lot for people this, this month has been anger. How do I work with anger? And, you know, the, you know, my way of helping people work with anger is always the same. It's like, be angry. <laughs> there should be a book, Be Angry Now. <laughs> I'll talk to Ram Das about it. <laughs> Be angry now. Because like, what happens is, is there's this anger and then there's all this feeling bad about being angry and being ashamed of your anger and like it's not spiritual and, you know, and some people are under-expressors and some people are over-expressors and those have their own dynamics that go, but how just to, to be fucking angry, <laughs> you know? But that's why it's hard to be with it. So, so, so the Buddhist perspective, the yogi perspective, is to be angry selflessly. To be so angry, so fully, that there's no self in it. To really see that energy empty of self. And so when I've been working with people, I, this is what I'm pushing all their buttons to get them to do. You know. It's like when someone says, you know, I'm quite neurotic. He says, show me. <laughs> like, don't, why are you talking about how you're neurotic? That's not neurotic. Again, that's like watching your breath. You don't talk about, oh, you know, I'm, oh, I'm feeling angry. You know, it, like if you're a writer... You can't say about your character in a novel, he got really angry, because the reader doesn't feel it. You have to describe the lightning outside and the, you know, dish falling off the shelf and, you know, the water boiling on the stove, and you have to show the anger. 
So this is what we do all the time. We're in religion, which is cut off. We're in the conceptual. So, so this is the anger of the religion of anger, is the religion of not actually being angry, showing anger. And if you can't fully be angry, then you do something stupid with it, because it goes underground really fast. So Thich Nhat Hanh says, when you get angry, don't do anything, don't say anything, go for a walk, and meditate on who you think you're angry at. And I would add to that, and when you're going for a walk, be angry, go hit something, you know, go... You know, there's this story people love to tell of Thich Nhat Hanh, some, a woman's... It's actually a woman I know from Montreal, who, who, and this became a famous story where she, she actually was taking... The story, the background story, is she was taking a plane with Thich Nhat Hanh. And you know when you're on a plane, you can corner someone, you know, and ask them. <laughs> and she said, you know, I'm a therapist, and when my clients get angry, I get them to hit a pillow. Really get their anger. And Thich Nhat Hanh says... What about the pillow? <laughs> and when I hear the story, I want to pull my hair out. Well, I don't have any hair, but I used to want to pull my hair out. But he, he was saying, well, what about the pillow? Yeah. So this guy hits the pillow, you know, someone hits the pillow, and he goes, well, the poor pillow. And like, come on. You know, to me, I don't buy it. I think, I think we, we need to find a way to express anger where we're not hurting anybody. And if you need to punch a pillow, or you need to kick a rock, or you need to throw something in a way where it's not going to cause any violence to anybody, that's what you need to do to take care of it. So you learn how to take care of your anger and be in it selflessly. And it's like, last week, there's so many people coming in talking about their anger. So, like... Like trying to like keep it over there and make sense of it and 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 come on. Let's. When you're sad, you've got to really be sad. And same with those of you who are parents. You know, it's really hard for kids when they don't see you sad and angry and bored. <laughs> because then they don't learn how they can be like that. And all of us are like that, right? Our, the emotions we tend to accept are the ones our parents, you know, were okay with. And then as adults, we have to learn, oh my God, these are these ones I'm not so okay with, and I need to learn how, how to be with them. So in my mind, Shinra Suzuki is doing the same thing here. He's saying, how do you actually be in your practice without an idea of what your practice is? And that's why, you know, last month when I was in Japan, it's like, there's just a point every day in the monasteries especially, you're like, what practice is this? What, like, you're trying to understand it, like, okay, so every time, you know, you walk down the hall, you walk and then you turn left, and then, like, the next day they'll change it. <laughs> you know? Um... Shunru Suzuki tells a story, not in this book, but I think it's in his other book, Not Always So, where he says, when he was training at Eheji, which is Dogen's monastery, um, 
his teacher, he, he would follow his teacher around all the time, because that's how you learn. You know, they don't talk much. You know, it's not just because you're a foreigner. Just, teachers just don't talk much. You just have to follow, and you learn, and not with any words. And so he said, so my teacher was beside me, and so I learned when there's a shoji screen, you always open the right door first. So I opened the right door, and my teacher scolded me and made me open the left door. So the next day, I went up to the door, and I opened the left door, and my teacher scolded me. And so I opened the right door. And only later did I learn that uh, because when a guest is coming, you, you can tell through the shadow of the screen what door you should open so the guest can come through first. <laughs> then Shinra Suzuki says, and then a month later, I was pouring tea for my teacher, and he said, when you pour tea for me, because generally, I don't know if anyone here, Joni probably knows this, but Japanese teacups, they don't have any handles. So you hold them from the top. So when you pour tea, you only pour 80% of the cup. You never pour above the 20% mark, or you can't hold the cup. It's too hot. So my teacher said, when you pour me tea, pour 99%. Always pour 99%. So the next day, there was a gathering, and Shinra Suzuki was the attendant. And so he came in, and he poured everyone's tea 99%. And he said, and my teacher scolded me. And I said, why, why are you scolding me? And he said, oh, I told you to pour my glass 99%. But you never pour people's glass. You pour 80%. <laughs> and that's the teaching. What's needed now? You don't know how you're going to need like you don't know how you're going to be needed next year you don't need know how you're going to uh, be asked to serve in five years maybe right now in your life you have a concern how many of us have a real concern right now and maybe we're running around so much getting advice. How many of us are getting advice? <laughs> really? That's it? Come on, how many of us are like asking our friends and professionals, you know? And then when's, when's the point where you have to go so much more underneath that? To that place where you know what to do. Maybe it's that place where you really have to go in to where you're scared. Or maybe where you're angry. And maybe you're avoiding feeling that. And that's the place of beginner's mind. And at the beginning of the text, the first thing Shinru Suzuki said about beginner's mind is that when you touch that place of original mind, when you touch that place of beginner's mind, all the precepts take care of themselves. When you touch that place underneath what you know, ethics arise. The precepts arise. They take care of themselves. So much of our life, you, you, can't, you can't get advice about it. 
even expensive advice. <laughs> how, how, how many times do we seek advice and then we seek more advice and then we seek more advice and then we seek more advice and the whole time we're seeking advice for a problem that we're not feeling our way into into that uncomfortable place that is actually a ground and, and moving from that, that place I do this all the time I have so many people that I can ask advice to. I'm lucky that way. It's one thing I've really tried to set up for myself, is people that I can really uh, ask questions. I'll actually tell you, how, one reason I'm thinking about all this is I've had a big concern the past couple of weeks. Uh, all kinds of trouble. And so I really wanted some advice. <laughs> so I emailed Roshi. I said, Roshi, here's the situation. And she wrote back, you don't need any advice. <laughs> and then she sent me in the mail. She sent me a Sometimes she doesn't respond by email. Because the mail's pretty... Has anybody here been mailing letters? It is so fast. So she's just in Manhattan. So sometimes I'll send her an email and she'll send me a, uh, a postcard. So she sent me this card that one of her students did. And it's just... Uh, it's from last year, actually. And it's just uh, somebody who looks kind of like an activist uh, sitting facing a wall. And underneath it, it, like meditating, facing a big white wall. And underneath it, it says, Occupy the wall. <laughs> oh, that's the advice. Occupy the wall. Does anybody have anything they want to say? Comments, questions. Sorry, I didn't. Com I didn't read my notes or even stick to the text at all tonight. But I promise next week I will. But anyways, I, I think I summed up what he was saying. Does anybody have any comments or questions? I, we took a few tangents tonight. And aware that next week's the last talk, so I got to go off a little bit. <laughs> Yeah. You talked about the concern and holding the concern and, and looking at it, but uh, not looking at it, but um, having it take form. Yeah. So I guess, how, how do you do this in day being your breath? Yeah, so, so feeling breathing, mm -hmm. and then as you're feeling breathing, it's like a fan. So the breath is like, a, think of it like it's like an accordion, you know? And if you ever look at a nice fan, it has all these really amazing folds in it, you know. And then as you're spreading out the breath, inside those folds, layers of sensation appear, and layers of images, and layers of thoughts, 
and conceptualizations, stories. And then the exhale comes and the fan closes. And then the fan opens again. And it's new patterns. Fan closes. And so th- this is the serpent of Kundalini, right? So the, the Kundalini is a metaphor for what the breath is doing in meditation practice. And so out of this serpent, are all these patterns are arising. You exhale, and some really start hanging around. So you see they kind of replicate. So I would say that's what eventually becomes a concern, right? Each moment, the pattern keeps showing up. So I'd say what that means is this is a habit pattern. It's chronic. And uh, you need to notice that. So then you notice it. You just kind of hold it. Oh, there's concern here. Noticing that, making room for that, and then staying with your breathing. And you can do both things simultaneously. You're staying with your breathing, and there's a concern. But what happens is you have to leave your breath to go into the concern. So if you then want to go into the concern and say, oh, yeah, what a jerk. (laughs) You know, what a jerk. I can't believe he did that. How did he walk out like that? Why did he take the dog? You know, I really wanted the dog, and I love the dog. Now I can't go to the park anymore because I see dogs and I'm so upset. I want to get a new dog, but now I've got a job and I travel. You know, but maybe I shouldn't travel anymore because it's a big carbon footprint, but I need the work. Maybe I'll just buy all those trees or whatever for an orchard or whatever, offset the carbon footprint. And then next thing you know, like you just missed your whole life. And that's an example, but sometimes that's like 10 years. 10 years, 15 years, off in your anger about how he walked out. Off in your anger or your sadness about not having the dog. The old property. The book you didn't write, the film you didn't make, the career you didn't take, and regret, blame, you know, or praise, too. So um, you have to just be able to hold these things with the breath. So what I'd say is once you get settled on feeling breath, the breath actually is what's holding them. The breath is holding grief. The breath just hold, the breath just takes care of it. Can I hold the anger? Like if you were to feel anger. And the breath just holds it. Uh, well, it depends who you are. Depends on the situation. Depends on the time. So I don't want to make a rule. But then we'd be using the practice. We'd, be, we'd have to come out of the breath. Oh, yeah. I come out of the breath and notice, oh, hey, there's some concern here. There's some anger here. And then that's going to need some attention. But hold that with your breathing during the meditation practice. Right. Yeah. And then later, you know, go into the garage with your axe. <laughs> or, you know, whatever you need to do. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think, I think it's just it's such a fine line between moving into the, 
the emotion, like feeling it. Feel the emotion. But not feel the emotion. As soon as, and as soon as I feel it, yeah. Then I'll attach an idea to it. No. Right. No. And so that's. You're not doing that part. Right. So that's that's what I meant by not by not. Um, by, by only by only staying with the emotion. Stay with so the emotion, feel the emotion. Let the breath feel the emotion, stay with it. Watch it change, watch it unfold, and sit completely still. And just wait for it to pass. Nope. <laughs> if you say, I'm waiting Safe for it to pass, <laughs> that's religion. Allow it to do what it's going to do. <laughs> so, okay, what I'm saying is stay with breathing let the breath take care of what's being felt if you start adding things to it like and watch it pass then you're going to be sitting there like when's it going to pass it will pass it will pass you know I have this saying I say all the time that you know feelings only last five minutes like no emotion lasts longer than five minutes and then someone said to me a couple of weeks ago, that's because you're a man. <laughs> <laughs> Is this true? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll work on that. <laughs> Do you hear what I'm saying a little yeah. bit? More? Yeah. Just like, don't get into your theory about what you're supposed to do when you're meditating. Just, just like, let, allow the breath, trust your breath enough that it can hold what's, what's going to be held. And if there's something there that needs more attention than just breathing with it, then um, wait until the sit's over. And then take care of it in the way it needs to be taken care of. Maybe you need to take a Tylenol. And, and go do that. Reduce the pain. Maybe you need to go work in the garden for two hours. Maybe you need to write a poem. Whatever you need to do. Have a croissant. <laughs> Suck your thumb. <laughs> That's my main practice. <laughs> Almond. Okay, so um, I don't want to go over time tonight. So let's chant, and um, uh, we'll stand up. <laughs>